Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Violet Podcast. This week we will be discussing the wider social context around the tragic events that befell Sarah Everard earlier this month. So please do be warned that this episode contains extended discussion of sexual violence, rape and murder. Listeners should also note that this week's episode is being recorded later than usual due to Jerome having a particularly busy schedule this week um, and so we did not have time to include any commentary on the protests in the wake of Sarah's death and the police response to them. Thank you for listening. So in the case of Sarah Everard, she left a friend's house um, in Clapham Common at about uh, nine in the evening, walked home on the phone to her boyfriend uh, and never reached home. It's being reported now that a Met Police officer was the one who, who abducted her and he's been charged with her, her disappearance and murder. And in terms of this particular story and, and why it's gained traction, it's not an isolated event. Uh, it's not unusual for women to face sexual assault and sexual violence and harassment. And why this particular story has gained prominence is, is another issue which we'll discuss later in the episode. Um, but off the bat, it's important to realise this is not an isolated event and that's what makes, if anything, more horrific. It's a pattern of wider violence against women in society. And we think it's important that in the wake of something like this, we don't just discuss the whys and wherefores and specifics of this particular event, because this event, as tragic as it was, has happened. We discuss this issue at large, this process, why it happens in general, and what can be done to stop it in general, uh, to try and provide some sort of useful commentary going forwards. And yeah, I think at this point, it's also worth noting we're both men, and we don't want this to be a a mansplaining episode and we don't want to be telling women how to be safe um, and you know, how to prevent this happening to them. The point of this is to, to dispel common myths uh, and misconceptions about sexual assault and to really explain how men can be better rather than to put the onus on women uh, and how they can be safer. And we think it's also important that stories like this aren't packaged into a box of women's issues or women's problems or problem for women. Um, there are all sorts of horrible things going on in the world that don't necessarily affect um, each and every individual, and it would be callous and naive of us to ignore those that don't directly affect us. So while we may not be women and neither of us have experienced sexual assault ourselves, that doesn't mean that it's not an important issue that everyone should be talking about. And just as neither of us are Myanmar, um, but we were still outraged by the government's actions there, just as neither of us are Hong Konger, neither of us are um, British Muslim women who've run away to Syria, um, this might not be something that affects us directly, but it's still something that we should all care about and we should all um, educate ourselves about. So even though this is principally a woman's issue and it's, a, it's an issue that affects women, as men that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be able to deal with it and we shouldn't be able to talk about it um, and we shouldn't care about it or have a stake in it and try to solve it. There is no way we can have an intuitive first-hand understanding of the emotions or the trauma involved um, and we would never pretend that that's the case. But we can still be sensible and empathetic about it we can put ourselves uh, in the shoes of women who face that or women who are scared of it, um, listen to their experiences and their stories and their worries and their concerns uh, and 
take responsibility to form our own understanding of the issue and think about how we can contribute to solutions. Yeah, I think it's important in any issue that predominantly affects a particular group of people that we don't box them into women's issues, men's issues, gay issues, whatever. These are problems in society that cause massive harm to people and everyone needs to come together to try and find solutions. But I think the most important thing to say here is that what we're discussing today is sexual violence committed by men against women. And if we're going to box this into an issue that is uh, that a certain group of people have, then actually the people here with the problem are men. And we've, we've meandered around the central point here quite a bit, but I think the central takeaway is that in in any instance, if there is a problem which affects a specific group within society, it does not mean it's incumbent on that group to provide the solution. In this case, it's a problem which affects primarily women. It doesn't mean it's women's responsibility to solve it and to stay safe. So in terms of looking at the wider problem here, instead of um, this one specific case, the first thing we need to ask ourselves is how prevalent is this as a problem? And the first thing to say whenever we're talking about statistics and sexual violence is that sexual violence is massively underreported. The charity rape crisis estimates that only 15% of sexual assaults are actually reported. So all of the statistics that we're going to say need to be taken with a pinch of salt. They are probably, almost certainly, not true. But um, what we do know is that they're wrong in a particular direction. The error is that they're underreported. And so however horrible the statistics that we quote here are, in reality, the number is going to be far higher. We only know about those um, sexual assaults and the sexual violence that is reported, and there is far, far more that isn't. And probably the, the, there's a number of reasons for that. Um, one is the, the notion, um, obviously completely untrue, that rape is the fault, sexual assault is the fault of the women, um, and that therefore makes them feel ashamed or uncomfortable or responsible for what's happened to them, which they absolutely shouldn't, uh, and that contributes to under-reporting. Another uh, aspect is the feeling that it won't make a difference. So over the past uh, three years, I believe, uh, from data reported in 2020, convictions for rape halved in the UK, uh, whilst the number of reported rapes rose. So a lot of, uh, a lot of women quite understandably feel that the system is stacked against them, that it doesn't work, that reporting it will only reopen um, emotional and traumatic wounds but will not have any legal consequences. That's also linked to a feeling that they won't be listened to, um, that the emotional trauma is, is too intense to relive, uh, or in, in a lot of circumstances, not wanting to report a partner or a friend or a family member out of an uh, idea that they don't want to, to punish someone close to them, or again, that they somehow blame themselves for what's happened to them, even though it's absolutely not their fault. So... In that context, that this number reports a um, small proportion of the total amount of sexual violence going on in the world, the UN estimates that a third of women over 15 worldwide have experienced sexual or physical violence. So that is not including sexual harassment, that is sexual or physical violence, one in three women globally. And 
beyond that, 97% of women in the UK specifically aged between 18 and 24, um, as reported from a YouGov survey, have experienced sexual harassment. Um, and even in a hypothetical day, in a hypothetical world where no women at all face sexual violence or sexual harassment, there is still everyday harm to women in the, the fear that they face just going about their everyday lives uh, and the need to modify their behaviours. So I've seen um, a lot of tweets recently about women saying when they walk through you know, dark car parks or where they walk anywhere at, at night or in the dark, they have their car keys clasped between their fingers uh, of, of running off the bus or kind of switching direction because they think someone's following them. All of these things, even if no sexual harassment directly takes place, contribute to, to emotional and psychological harm. Now, I'm sure that most women listening to this podcast will um, immediately understand and sympathize with these numbers and will intuitively have known this already, even if they didn't know the numbers. But the first thing uh, that male listeners of this podcast need to realize out of this is that this is not an isolated event. This is not um, a horrible thing that happens somewhere far away in poor war-torn countries or in different cultures or in different parts of the country. This is something that is happening all around the world to women everywhere, just about all of the time. Yeah, and in terms of the, the Sarah Everard case, the reason I think that it's it's jumped out so far into the public consciousness is because she did everything which women are told to do. Um she she left you know before it was too late she was on the phone to her boyfriend she was walking along a reasonably well-lit road uh, and she still was a victim of horrific um horrific violence and it dispels a lot of, of common myths about sexual violence uh the overarching one is that it's for some reason incumbent on the woman to avoid it rather than incumbent on men not to do it so this is a topic that has certainly blown up on social media recently and is all over the internet and seems to be all that everyone is talking about. So the first thing we'd like to do is go through some common myths that it seems a lot of people uh, believe about sexual violence um, and dispel them. One that people might not realise isn't true is the idea that sexual violence is uh is largely perpetrated by strangers. Whilst in the particular case of Sarah Everard, she did not know her attacker, that is actually um, that is actually the exception and not the norm. So roughly a third of female homicide victims are murdered by their partners. Not even just by people they know, but by their partners, by their spouses. That number rises to about half when you include partners or family members. So fully 50% of murders of women in this country every year are committed either by their partners or their family members. And if we expand our definition from murder to rape as well, 90% of rape victims knew their attacker before the event. Uh, A second myth also worth dispelling is the idea that if women just wore modest clothing they they would be less likely to, to be assaulted. And this is something which is very commonly reflected in reporting about sexual violence in, in the news and in social media. One of the instinctive knee-jerk questions that people always seem to ask is, what was she wearing as if what a woman is wearing uh, contributes to or uh, has a bearing on the likelihood of assault? 
this is um, statistically completely false for the reason that we've just outlined. Most sexual violence against women is is domestic, and that off the bat means that there is absolutely no correlation between dress and probability of being attacked um, because most women who face that level of sexual violence are simply at home in just their normal home clothes um, or yeah, what, what would otherwise just be considered modest clothing. Uh, and even outside the home, there is no statistical uh, correlation between what a woman wears uh, and how likely they are to be assaulted. And something that I've also seen quite a lot on social media recently uh, is accounts by Muslim women saying that they were in full hijab in front of you know the Kaaba, the holiest site in Islam, and they were groped uh, during the pilgrimage to the Hajj. And obviously, this is not to suggest that Muslim men are inherently uh, more likely to commit sexual violence than any other men, but just to underline the point that the modesty of a woman's clothing has no bearing on the likelihood of them being sexually assaulted. And furthermore, even if there was, this would not be an argument for women to wear more modest clothing to avoid being the victims of such horrific crimes. The responsibility is never with the victim, it's always with the assaulter. And I think it's it's also worth pointing out some parallels here to show how ludicrous the argument is that it's the responsibility of a woman to, to change very basic facts about her existence just to avoid becoming the victim of violence. It would be like telling a Muslim woman wearing a hijab the best way to avoid becoming a victim of Islamophobic violence is to take off your hijab. It would be like telling uh, someone who's had their car stolen, you shouldn't have had a car, it might have got stolen. It would be like telling someone, uh, a black person who's a victim of racist abuse, to act less black or to wear certain clothing uh, in public and to appear more white to avoid that assault. Even if you could show that correlation, it is again never the fault of a victim of a crime, it is the fault of the perpetrator of the crime. One of the things that's particularly twisted about that way of looking at crime in general, that it's the responsibility of the victims of assault, violence, whether it's sexual or not, doesn't matter, um, that it's their responsibility to avoid it, is that it removes the agency of the people actually doing this. It's almost as if people think of uh, rape as a fact of life, as a uh, force of nature, as a thing that just exists out there and we can't do anything about it. In the way that we have to just deal with earthquakes and hurricanes, we need to find ways of avoiding the damage caused by those, but we can't really stop them from happening. But of course, violence is not something that is innately, naturally just out there and happens. Violence is something that people choose to do. And if we ignore that, and if we assume that people just will be violent, um, it's only ever going to carry on. The only way we could ever come towards some sort of solution the only way we can actually reduce violence and come to the future that we'd all like to get to where this just doesn't happen is to look at the people committing that violence, try and understand why they do it and try and prevent them from doing it. And if we don't assign them the agency, if we don't realise that they have chosen to do this, then we can't make any steps in that direction. A third um, common objection or, or myth that people have about sexual assault uh, and this is one which almost exclusive or exclusively comes from men, is the notion that women don't need to worry about me because I am a good guy uh, and they shouldn't be scared of me because I have no intention of, of harming them. And 
whilst you may have no intention whatsoever of harming a woman that you're physically uh, close to in, in the street or on a bus or wherever else in public, it is just basic empathy to try and make people around you feel comfortable if you can make small tweaks to your behaviour in order to achieve that. Um, it's no skin off your nose, it's no great loss for you to make someone feel comfortable if you're walking home at night and you happen to go the same way and there's someone that's more vulnerable than you. You can stop and tie your shoelaces uh, so they can get further ahead of you. You can take a, a short detour. There are so many ways in which you can make that situation more comfortable for the woman who is who is scared or, or terrified and is in a more vulnerable position. And yes, you are very slightly inconveniencing yourself. And yes, you may also feel some discomfort that someone perceives you as a potential threat. But that discomfort and that inconvenience is nowhere near the discomfort or inconvenience that a woman feels when she is you know, in fear for her life uh, or in fear that she may be sexually assaulted. And obviously, this is not a legal obligation that you have to fulfill as a man, but it's just basic empathy. Again, the inconvenience to you is so minor and the, the harm uh, psychological that's avoided for the woman far outweighs that. Another common objection that's raised in times like this is that um, men are obviously victims of sexual violence too, and men are murdered, uh, victims of murder too, and in fact the majority of murder victims are men. Now, this is one of those curious points in the sense that, in strictly speaking, it is true. Um, men are the victims of sexual assault as well, although at a much, much, much lower rate than women, and the majority of uh, murder victims are men. The problem with that is that those things are not mutually exclusive. Murder is a tragedy. Murder is a massive problem in society that we need to deal with. And there are different types of murder which have different causes and therefore have different solutions. Solving gang violence is a huge problem that society needs to face and needs to do something about. Solving terrorism is a huge problem that society needs to do something about. Solving sexual violence is another, probably bigger than the other two actually, problem that society needs to deal with. And saying that sexual violence by men against women is a massive, um, insidious, endemic problem in society is in no way detracting from the fact that men get murdered too, and men get sexually assaulted too, uh, and it's made no less true by the fact that men get murdered too, and men get sexually assaulted too. But the two are caused by different things. The two are different types of violence that are caused in different ways, uh, and which need to be looked at differently and treated differently. Because around 75% of female murder victims are killed by men. Around half of female murder victims are killed by family members, whereas only about 10% of male murder victims are killed by family members. The vast majority of male murder victims are killed by acquaintances who are not part of their family, and the violence is in no way sexually related. The vast majority of female murder victims are killed by men who are partners or are killed um, in episodes of sexual violence. So the two are different problems with different causes and different solutions, uh, but caring about one in no way means that we can't care about the other. So an another myth or really a collection of, of myths and misunderstandings surrounds the issue of consent. Um, and something that a lot of people seem to misunderstand is the idea that 
consenting to sexual activity in general um, is not broad consent to every instance of sexual activity, nor is it an invitation for everyone uh, and anyone to to assault that person. Consent is something which is very specific. It's based on consent to specific acts to specific people. It can be withdrawn. It can change over time. And it's not something which is broad and universal. And this often feeds into misunderstandings about what is rape and what is assault and what isn't. Uh, one of the most horrific examples I can think of is marital rape, which is still legal across huge, uh, huge parts of the world. Um, off the top of my head, China, India, much of the Middle East, uh, a lot of North Africa, where it is not legally recognised that a man could rape his wife. It's felt as if, as if the man is owed uh, sexual activity by his wife. Uh, and that he's entitled to it. Um, this is something which was actually law in the UK until, I think, 1991, um, and then kind of more formally enshrined in the law in the early 2000s. So it's not, again, as if this is a problem which is out there in other parts of the world in what you know people might perceive as the third world. This is something which is very common and very endemic uh, across most human societies. Uh, and this, again, then, feeds into another aspect of consent, uh, which is that people, or many people, would believe the absence of a firm no uh, is consent. And that is that is simply not the case. Many people may feel as if they have not committed sexual violence or sexual assault, or they are one of the good guys or the good people um, because they haven't barreled past the firm no. But in those instances where a woman is clearly uncomfortable, where you haven't got firm active consent and you, you persist, that is sexual assault, that is sexual violence. So a lot of um, a lot of men may have committed sexual violence or sexual harassment or assault without recognising it. Again, that is not a problem for women to deal with. That is something where it's incumbent on men to be better, uh, to recognise what consent is and to act accordingly. And I think this is the central reason why sexual violence is such a controversial topic and why so many people um, get so very angry in arguments about this from the point of view of, of men is that a lot of sexual violence comes from the fact that uh, different people, and I don't necessarily want to gender that because there are men and women on both sides of this divide, but different people have different definitions of what is or isn't um, sexual assault. And so a lot of people feel very offended by other people's definition of sexual assault because that is something that they might consider doing themselves. That's something that they consider to be acceptable themselves. And that creates the, the animosity on both sides that makes this, this issue so difficult to break down. And we'll get further into what we can potentially do about that later in the episode. But what I want to say at this point is that um, as men, broadly, what we need to remember is that any sort of um, discomfort that sexual assault and discussions about it uh, might give us, the pain and trauma that it causes on the other side is immeasurably greater. And that all it really takes for men to understand that is a little empathy and a little discussion. Um, and to sort of put this into a succinct example, any man with any level of emotional intelligence will have um, realized before when they're walking along a dark street at night and there's a woman ahead of them that they are making her feel uncomfortable. And 
however horrible that feels for somebody to look at you and to feel like they're looking at you like a predator, it only takes a tiny level of empathy to realize that having someone look at you and feeling like they're looking at you as prey is far, far, far worse. And more generally, when it comes to sexual violence and the definition of sexual violence and that its relationship with consent, we do need to realize that we need to have the understanding and sympathy for fellow human beings to realize in any case when an action that someone is taking is causing significant harm to others. And even if that harm is not something that we might have experienced ourselves or not something that we might understand, to listen to and understand those people when they say that it is causing them significant harm, and in this case, extremely significant harm. So any objection to um, the idea of sexual violence, any objection to the idea that this is a problem, any objection to the idea that men might need to do something to change their behaviour to uh, reduce it, must stem from a place of downgrading or ignoring women's experiences and deciding that the harm caused to women, the pain caused to women, uh, and their expression of that is not worthy of listening to. So we would like to point out at this point that consent is a huge, sprawling issue, and we've only really scratched the surface of it. Um, And it's something we will probably come back to in future articles and podcasts. In terms of all of the myths that we've outlined above regarding sexual assault and sexual violence and harassment, and proposals on how to solve them, there is a school of thought which proposes the umbrella solution of social conservatism uh, as a way to reduce sexual violence. This is something that we think is not a solution for the reason that it merely pushes um, problems of sexual violence and assault into a domestic sphere and out of public life, but it doesn't mean that they still, uh, it doesn't mean that they stop existing. Um, People often point, for example, to comparative rape and assault uh, statistics in European countries versus, uh, say, for example, Saudi Arabia, to suggest that social conservatism, that women dressing modestly, uh, women obeying their husbands, staying in the home, not going out, uh, is a solution. But this ignores a lot of other things in the data, like reporting rates, for example. Reporting rates for sexual violence are much higher in, say, Sweden than they are in Saudi Arabia. It ignores uh, different definitions of sexual assault. So, for example, the Saudi statistics don't recognize marital rape as a form of assault, whereas they would in Sweden. And it also ignores other forms of awful violence, like FGM and and honor killings, um, which I think are are badly named, but that's the, the common term for them. So the main point that we would like to make arising from the dispelling of these myths is that sexual assault is not something that can be solved by further restricting women's liberties uh, and reducing their rights. And it's not just the case that um, forcing women to stay in the home is actually putting them in the place where they are most vulnerable and most likely to suffer from sexual violence, although that is true. The other point that needs making there is that sexual violence and rape is the most horrific form of a wider problem of restrictions on women's rights generally. And... As we were saying earlier about about fear being part of the problem, women not being able to walk the streets at night feeling safe is an impingement on their liberty. Women not being able to walk the streets at night at all is an even greater impingement on their liberty. So 
that is in no way a solution. It is, in fact, taking the problem and ramping it up further. Quite a common objection that I've, that I've seen online and in other discussions over the, over the past week uh, is that of not all men. Uh, not all men are, are, are rapists or guilty of sexual violence or sexual assault, and so we shouldn't tar all men with the same brush. And yes, that is obviously the case. Not all men are rapists or, or sexual uh, harassers or assaulters, but that response is defensive and, and knee-jerk in many ways. The point is that women cannot know which men are, are rapists or sexual assaulters or harassers. There's not like a rape gene. There is not a specific look for rapists or, or would-be assaulters. Um, and so women have to be wary of, of all men. And if, as men, we don't want this, uh, this generalization to exist, then it is incumbent on us to, to go further than just not being assaulters. That is the absolute baseline. The bar is underground. We have to be better than that. Um, there's also a necessity for calling out misogynistic attitudes in friend circles. Um, and those are uncomfortable discussions, but those are discussions that have to be had. Uh, very often, I've, I've seen on social media, a lot of men making very you know, loud declamations of, of violence against would-be hypothetical assaulters, saying, you know, if anyone ever assaulted my friend, I would beat them up, I would punch them in the face. And fine, that, that, that's one thing. But more fundamentally than that, when you see friends expressing misogynistic attitudes, which feed into that rape culture, that's where you can make a difference. That's where you can call it out. And that's where you change things at the grassroots. Right. I will meet violence with violence is nowhere near as um, worthy a sort of virtue to have as I will prevent violence in the first place. I think it's also worth pointing out that what you've implicitly sort of assume there but I think I think some listeners might need us to say this explicitly is as we said at the top men committing violence against women is a man problem this is not a women's problem this is not something this is not an issue in society that exists within the group known as women and which is their responsibility to deal with this is an issue in society which exists in men and yes not all men but men are the perpetrators of this. And it's then, if it's incumbent on any group to think about the way that group acts, what it means to be a part of that group, and the problems with being a part of that group that lead to issues such as sexual violence, then that group is men. And it's incumbent on all men to change the way that masculinity is seen, to um, change the way that they view their own masculinity and to intervene with others to stop men from committing sexual violence. It is not incumbent on women to come together and run from it. So in, in terms of everything that we've discussed and propo proposed responses that we've seen being put forward uh, to solve sexual violence, uh, the main ones which we've seen, again, mostly from men, although not exclusively, are that women should dress less provocatively, that they should learn some form of, of self-defence, uh, that we should have better street lighting, um, and one which is not really seriously mooted as a solution, it's more to show how ludicrous it is to expect women to self-restrict themselves, is the idea of a male curfew and not letting men out after six. Um, we don't think these are really sustainable long-term solutions. I think it is worth pointing out how um, the points that we've made so far prove that those uh, proposed solutions wouldn't work. In the case of self-defence, 
first of all, the majority of sexual violence happens in a domestic environment and self-defence may well not be an option depending on what the situation is. Secondly, it's again uh, taking on the idea that dealing with sexual violence and preventing sexual violence is women's prerogative, is, is women's problem, um, and removes the agency from the men perpetrating it and removes uh, the idea that, that they have chosen to do this and is based on an assumption that this will just happen and there's nothing that can be done about it, that there isn't something going on in society, ideas in society that people perpetrating sexual violence have taken on board and believe that are causing the violence. Um, and if we deny that, then we're never going to come to a solution. Any complex problem in society, in the world, has complex solutions and there are no silver bullets. But in the case of sexual violence and sexual assault, prevention is far more important than justice. In terms of prevention, we don't mean prevention which is victim-blaming. So we don't mean that it should be incumbent on women to change their behaviours and change their actions to avoid being uh, victims of sexual violence. We believe the solutions are stopping men being perpetrators of sexual violence. The simple answer, uh, if ever there was such a thing, is that men need to be feminists. But that is a long, slow, uncomfortable road. Uh, the first stage to any broad pattern of violence um, against any group or any minority is dehumanisation. Um, and so really the underlying solution to stop sexual violence by men against women is to get to the point where men see women as equally and equivalently human with the same rights, the same responsibilities, the same entitlements uh, to act freely and not be uh, seen as potential victims or as, as vulnerable. That is a long and complicated process, but that is ultimately the end point. And some listeners might think that that conclusion seems utopian or that that uh, conclusion seems weak. Um, but it's a sort of a universal truth of social sciences that any problem that is widespread and existent in society today that has been around for thousands and thousands of years, uh, as long as there have been people, is a complicated problem that is difficult to solve. Any simple problem that is easy to solve with a silver bullet has been solved already. Someone has done something about that. So any solution that is proposed to a problem like this that is simple must be might be helpful in a small way, but is never going to um, absolutely end sexual violence. Now, sexual violence can only end in a world in which um, men see women as equal. Um, simply because no one sees themselves as the villain. Nobody wakes up in the morning thinking that they're going to try and do as much harm to the world as possible. Everyone sees themselves as the protagonist in their own life, and yes, people might make mistakes, but in the moment where people perform their actions, they believe that to be the right thing to do, otherwise they wouldn't do it. So people who commit acts of sexual violence believe that they have the right to, or believe that they are in some twisted way gaining revenge for something, or believe that they need to do it for some reason, but they see it as okay. And the only way that they can do that is if they feel themselves as entitled over women, or have a hatred of women for some perceived slight uh, that has been performed by an entire gender, which is of course impossible. But 
whatever the sort of specific manifestation of it is, men who commit sexual violence must see women as, as you said earlier, dehumanized, as lesser, as other. And so to have a permanent solution to this and to have an actual solution where sexual violence isn't just sort of kept at bay by strict policing, but it simply does not happen, is a world in which men view women as equally and equivalently human, as fully human, as just as human. Um, And how we get to that point is a very difficult question and is probably another podcast entirely in its own right. Um, But to sort of briefly scratch the surface of that, um, with any sort of, with any sort of cleavage in society, with any uh, different sets of groups of people, um, the first stage towards uh, solving any sort of friction between those groups is is discussion, is dialogue, is um, trying to understand the experiences of people whose lives are different to yours, um, and having the empathy and emotional intelligence to understand different people's points of view, different people's perspectives, and to view other people's experiences of the world as equally valid and equally important as your own. Now, this is especially important when we think about the way in which we raise children in society, because um, when we're young, when we're children, when we're learning um, from everyone around us, from the whole society around us about the way the world works, the way people work, uh, the way we're supposed to behave, what's right and what's wrong. We absorb all of that as children and we carry it with us throughout the rest of our lives. So if we really want to um, solve sexual violence in the long run, we need to think about the way in which we raise children of different genders and the way in which we encourage them to speak to each other, to understand each other, to value each other, and not to... Um, discard or other or ignore issues and thoughts and feelings of different people from different groups. And that is obviously the most fundamental starting point or building block for creating this better future. But we also have to to accept, uh, or maybe accept is the wrong word, but we have to recognise that there are grown adults today um, who still believe in these horrific things. And as as we said previously, if you think you are one of the good guys TM, but aren't having those discussions with your friends or people in your social circles and calling out misogynistic jokes and misogynistic attitudes, or just passing them off as banter, um, you are not contributing to solutions to the problem. So yes, while in the ideal world, and eventually we would want all children to be raised with this mindset already in place, there is also a lot of work to be done now in the present moment for men to educate other men and friends uh, about these attitudes and why they're wrong and how they can be better. So our conclusion in this episode is probably twofold. Firstly, sexual violence is the most extreme manifestation of misogyny, and sexual violence will not end until misogyny does. Secondly, ending misogyny is not women's prerogative, nor is it a simple task. It is part of a long and complex dialogue of which this podcast hopefully forms an infinitesimally small part. If you have any comments on this week's episode, please do get in contact with us by email to contact.theviolet at gmail.com, on Twitter at underscore theviolet underscore, or through the website theviolet.net. Of course, 
please forward this episode on to anyone whom you think should hear it. Thank you very much for listening.